Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Artistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On today's episode, Renal Gokhale joins me to discuss stereotypes, sexual health in South Asian communities, and how weightlifting has positively impacted her life. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Renal, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start off by learning about your story and where does it begin in the autistic community? I have a younger brother who was diagnosed as a baby and he lives with my parents and has to be able to continue doing so and then we'll live in a group home after that. He was diagnosed early due to a lot of language difficulties that still follow him today. And then I was... I met a therapist at the age of 25 that said within a few months of meeting me that she thinks that I have it too. And what was kind of your initial response to your therapist saying this? Because sometimes when people tell someone that they might be autistic, it doesn't go so well. The technicality behind that is she called it social communication disorder. I don't know if that's a thing in the DSM-5 anymore because... You know, that's not the field that I work in. However, from what I understand, that was like a label that they came up with a few years ago to kind of indicate that somebody shows autistic traits from a language and communication standpoint, as far as things like difficulty reading social cues and just that, which is why they want to separate it from autism as it relates to things like sensory issues and restrictive repetitive behaviors. So I don't know if I reacted a little differently because she called it that instead. And I felt like, yeah, social communication is an issue for me. Whereas if she would have said you're autistic, I would have been like, I don't have the same thing my brother has. There's no way. <laughs> but then I think that she presented it in a way of saying, you know, I think this could open up windows of opportunities for you to help people be more understanding of certain traits and behaviors of yours and this and that. And she went through the bullet point list and then I felt it matched up with me. And then as we continued to speak, I started to see the parallels to autism. And shortly afterward, then I feel like the psychology community started changing it through Asperger's out and then started saying it's just autism and this and that. So by then I accepted. I love to learn. And I read where you've also said you love learning. And although you are a college graduate, the, the education model wasn't a thing for, for you, what wasn't a, maybe a good fit. What is it about our current education model that doesn't work for you? Because I have a lot of opinions on this one. So growing up in school, the school system, when I was a little kid and older, compared to my peers who were not in special ed, I would have immense difficulty with following instructions 
and directions and I wouldn't meet homework deadlines in time unless one of my parents were to make sure I did it or sometimes even remain in the same room as me as I was doing it so that I wouldn't take forever to do it. And I think that, so my strong subjects were in the areas of liberal arts, reading, writing, a foreign language, and I think rote information is what I'm good at, memorization of facts and data, and then I would struggle with math and science. And I think that what doesn't work for me is how, so I've discovered, for example, through therapy that when I'm being told what to do, my brain can usually only handle one to two instructions at a time, for example. I want to do that much. I want to ensure it's correct, then move on. And then I think that I also come to realize that one-on-one learning for a lot of things tends to be good for me. And I think that's because it goes at my pace and because it allows me to ask all the questions of clarification that I want so that there isn't dependence on me to infer things, like try to figure out what things mean while also trying to wrap my head around my short-term memory skills with the following of instructions and all that. Before I move to the next question, how do I pronounce the name of your book? The first word. Saya. Saya. Okay, Saya. Okay, I didn't want to mess up. Okay. okay. So in thinking about learning, you wrote a book, Saya Unveiled, South Asian Mental Health Spotlighted, that shares 11 true stories of second-generation Indian, Pakistani, and Bangladeshi immigrants and how they navigate mental health in, in the West. What were some of the most important things you learned from these second generation immigrants? I would say that I found a lot of parallels to my life and it felt therapeutic in its own way. People of Asian descent fall under the, are often grew up under the model minority myth. What is the model minority myth? It is the false notion that certain groups of people are just effortlessly and unequivocally successful. So when we talk about stereotypes, stereotypes don't always have to be all bad. For example, when you hear something like all Asians are smart, all Asians are math whizzes, all Indians are doctors and engineers, that sounds, it's not a bad thing to be those things, but to paint it with that broad stroke brush creates undue pressure, obviously. And I think that that's What created pressure for me growing up is seeing the Indian community around me being portrayed in one way and questioning why it had to be that way and why I was almost made to feel guilty if I didn't fit that mold. And I think that reading the book, a lot of people reported feeling similar pressures as far as things like, you know, always doing what's expected and set up of them by prior generations or what they should be based on what other people who look like them are, that type of thing, and how that creates things like academic pressure and how that therefore creates mental health struggles. And then also there's a stigma. So obviously there's a notion that people of color have more stigma towards mental health and neurodivergence than white people. So then you'll see repetitive patterns of my book about people in the book saying things like mommy and daddy won't let me go to therapy, take medicine, tell people that I'm diagnosed with such and such. And then having to kind of navigate that with their family and kind of overcoming that and educating generations older than them that mental health isn't something to be ashamed of and is something real and that you should be able to seek treatment and support for. And you're also the co-producer of Brown Women Health, 
podcast, whose mission is to inform about the health disparities of South Asian women. One aspect of health that seems to be neglected so often is sexual health. And your podcast did a mini series on sexual health. What were some of that were discussed during this mini series? In that series, so how I came up for it, will answer your question directly. So the first episode is actually features a medical student, actually a family member of mine who wants to work in women's health. And she talks about the stigma of sex and sexual health in South Asian communities, the ideology of things like having to hide things from your parents, including at an adult age, and why it's important for sexual health doctors to be cognizant of these cultural differences, as well as why that's all the more reason also for more brown women to work in the sexual health field and also be a source of comfort to, to fellow brown patients. Another guest was a pelvic health doctor who talked about what types of health issues she addresses and what the differences between a pelvic health doctor and a gynecologist. And then another guest talked about was a sexual health educator. And she talked about how and why she developed a sex education website entirely in the Bengali language, which is unique and probably unheard of almost. So basically, I came up with the idea because I noticed that this is such an issue as far as sex and menstrual health and reproductive health being a taboo in South Asian communities and wanting to talk about just that. And I was like, my cousin's passionate about it and so are other people. So why not do multiple episodes on it as a way of educating South Asian women that A, can't go to their parents to learn sexual health and are looking for a way to learn it and B, just to help just to bring these issues to the forefront and make them more talked about. Yeah, I think it's so important to bring those issues to the forefront just for the autistic community in general. There's such a lack of sexual education. So I love seeing things like this being brought out and, and that education. You know, we were talking about education earlier, but um, the education through podcasts, uh, I think, is a great way for me to personally learn. So yeah, and I think that it's important for, I think that marginalized communities, period, may perhaps need a platform that's more specifically made for that particular community, whether you want to call it a racially marginalized one, a sexually marginalized one, or someone with a disability. Absolutely. I wanted to talk to you about some things that you do that I think can be really helpful to one's health. Now, I know you're no clinician, but one of those things is attention restoration therapy. What is, is this type of therapy? And for those that might not be aware of it or not have even heard of it, and how has it helped you? Okay, so basically, and I'm going to summarize this in the most unprofessional sounding way possible, FYI. So basically what happened was a few months ago, I went on like a vacation with family and then I enjoyed, we went to a farm together and then my favorite part of it was running through it all by myself. Then that helped me realize, you know, I noticed that I enjoy nature when I'm by myself 
better than when I'm with others? Is it because I'm an introvert or is there something a little deeper to that that could be true for a lot of people? And then I did a search and then I found an article on psychology today on attention restoration therapy. And basically the gist of it is that they said that research studies have suggested that being alone in nature helps you to disconnect from social media, from the public image you present to the world and helps you to really zone in on the scenery and the details of it and be mindful and not have a bazillion and one things going through your head or to do. And then that kind of promotes like cognitive reset in a sense, when you get drained from everyday life demands, like work, like school and and, you know, having to complete tasks, you don't have to do that when you're just sitting alone in nature is basically what it says. Even more interestingly, it said that people feel less lonely in nature by themselves than in public places by themselves. I was just in nature the other day hearing the streams go by and it was windy <laughs> out. It was just, I felt so much better than I thought, why don't I do this more often? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wish I could too. Oh, something else that uh, I understand has helped you is weightlifting, in particular, proper form and breath work um, when doing these exercises. What changes have you seen, um, if any, in, in your life since starting to lift weights? In the most non-clinical sounding way possible, I'll say that I'm double jointed. And what that means is the scientific term for that is hypermobility syndrome. And what that means is that joints bend way far out of range than average in their motion. It's wonderful to be flexible, but at the same time, it can cause muscles to have to work too hard to support the body, which can cause pains and stuff over time. So if any listeners have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, perhaps maybe they can relate I don't have EDS, but I do have hypermobility syndrome. And basically my issue has been that, you know, when doing loose, I do tend to overstretch and I feel like in public class settings, a trainer or a teacher can't necessarily pay attention to that or show me how to do it right. And thankfully I just kind of fell into some weightlifting classes at the gym that I go to now for a relatively affordable rate one-on-one. -on -one. And that trainer does know a thing or two about double jointedness and is very good at, is capable of watching me to make sure that I execute proper forms when doing the move. So I would say the most quick noticeable change was that after just two lessons, I would notice my walk slow down. I think that most who know me will say that I have a, a fast, loud, clunky walk, and I'm known for being kind of clumsy in that way. And face value, that doesn't necessarily sound like a bad thing, but I mean, one doctor did say that he thinks that my low back pain might be related to walking too hard. So that is why I consider that a potential improvement, you know, just slow improvements in my coordination, my grace. I'm not into this to become a bodybuilder or lose weight. I just want to build some muscle stability to be able to support my hypermobility, you know, as I age. And I'm curious about the breath work because in my life this year, I've incorporated breath work and I learned that I wasn't even, I didn't know how to breathe correctly. Um, I had an inverted breathing pattern and I learned that a lot, most people don't know how to breathe correctly. So 
Can you tell me a little bit about uh, that experience? So what they said, so basically this trainer says that basically when you're exerting, you have to kind of inhale and hold right before you do the move. And then when you exert, you exhale out. And I don't think anyone and any teacher I've gone to when it comes to strength class has necessarily emphasized breath work other than for things like yoga and Pilates. But I think that basically what they said is that doing it this way when it comes to lifting can is helpful as far as helping prevent injuries, for example. And for women particularly, I think they said to prevent pelvic issues from developing over time from lifting. And Renal, how can our listeners learn about you beyond uh, this interview? I'm on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And I have a Linktree account where you can find my social medias as well as the link to read a sample to and buy my book and writings that I've done over the years about wellness and health. Well, I know I've been following you for a while on Instagram, so I uh, recommend everyone else do the same. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me again. Thanks so much to Renal for the conversation. To learn more about Renal, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. At Autism Personal Coach, we provide customized coaching for autistics to help improve the quality of our lives. All of our coaches are either autistic or autistic selected for their commitment to trauma-informed and neurodiversity-affirming strategies. They deeply understand burnout, sensory needs, executive functioning, and the importance of special interests. If you're interested in learning more about our coaching, please visit autismpersonalcoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories. And if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.